0: There is a theme that you'll see here. I'll show you this morning, but you would see this too. One of the ways you can find themes in Scripture is just look for repeated words. Look for the drama. Look for where it makes you feel emotion. And you'll oftentimes find the main point or the theme. I'll show you some repeated words. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery And then they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. Now something you might not catch in the ESV, but some of the other translations you would see more clearly, it gives uh, language that helps you to understand their motivations. And it says, this they said to test, or some translations, him. Set a trap. Traps catch. So the theme here is caught. Have you ever in your life been harshly treated? Have you ever felt like someone was setting a trap for you? Have you ever felt or experienced people doing harm to you? Have you ever been in a relationship where you were regularly treated selfishly and on the receiving end of stinging judgments? Well, then you know how Jesus felt in this moment. Have you ever made... Stinging or brought accusations against someone? Have you ever been driven, internally driven by a sense of rightness? Have you ever said things and done things without concern for the impact or effect on others? Now, none of you are saying anything, but I trust that every one of you would nod in this. Have you ever forgotten that there's sometimes something more important than being right? That maintaining love and mercy and charity is something that's really important to God. Well, then you know how the Pharisees felt. Have you ever felt trapped in your sin? Have you ever made choices that have really screwed things up? Have you ever felt the overwhelming sense of guilt and paralyzing shame that comes from an awareness of something that you did? Well, then you know how the woman felt. Something here for everyone. Now, let's deal with something. We've got to get to work dealing with something. Because most of you, I don't know if you've noticed this. I hope some of you did. There is, in my Bible, and probably in most of the Bibles that we're using... There's a, like a, a, a space there and a significant footnote in my Bible. The footnote has a parenthesis in it right at the end of chapter 7 and it says this. The earliest manuscripts do not include verses 753 through 8 verse 11. Then I have a footnote that says, so I look down at the footnote and it says, some manuscripts don't include 7, chapter, f- verse, chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. In some of your Bibles, it might not even be there. This section might not even, it might just end with seven fifty two and start with 8, verse 12. What are you supposed to do with that? That should raise some questions. Every week I try to get up on a regular basis. We as pastoral team try to get up and preach what God's word says. Here I got a parenthetical that says it doesn't appear in most of the manuscripts. So what am I preaching today? It's not included in all of the early Greek manuscripts of John's Gospel. None. Listen to this. None of the early church fathers who wrote commentaries on John's Gospel included it. One or two early manuscripts from Luke have it. The hesitation to include it may have been partly due to its content. On the surface, this text appears that Jesus has a very soft, very liberal attitude towards sin and especially sexual sin. Now you know that there were no printers when the early manuscripts were written. You know that. So when you needed a copy of the Bible, you know what had to happen. Someone's scribes had to copy it. And there's a lot of, uh, of risk for human error when someone is looking at something and copying it. Have you ever copied something wrong? So the transcripts down through time have errors in them. Copies don't always agree on every detail. Now, what I would want you to know is more than 99% of the manuscripts and the copies of those manuscripts are in all of the families of the documents, of the copies. So the overwhelming consensus of textual critics is that this may not have been a part of the gospel of John. But the overwhelming consensus of textual critics and scholars would also say that the account is indeed authentic, apostolic, and should be contained in the New Testament. Whether it belongs here, or in Luke's Gospel, or somewhere else in the Bible, I'll leave that question for the ages. But I believe that this is the very Word of God, and that's why I'm going to preach it. This morning. Now, I hope you're not disturbed to learn. Maybe some of you are sitting there thinking that's exactly what I needed to hear. I just needed to hear that there's a loophole in God's Word. I I, I don't have to obey this because clearly, didn't you hear Him say? How can we know it's true? How can we trust any section of God's Word? That's like saying, I heard R.C. Sproul give a great illustration for this. That's like saying if someone put a bomb in, in one of the Smithsonian, in the in this Institute of Standards and Technology in Washington, D.C., and blew up our official yardstick, there wouldn't be enough accurate yardsticks in the world And copies to allow us to reconstruct what a yard is. Of course we could reconstruct it. And we could do it with infinitesimal degrees of accuracy. The same holds true for your Bible. Good? All right, let's get to the text. This is a carefully baited trap. Jesus is oftentimes walking into, knowingly walking into traps that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the elite have set for him. You know that they want to kill him. We know that from studying this gospel. You know that they're against him. You know that they're, they're, they're always riled by the things that he says, and they're always trying to catch him. So what do they do this time? They bring a woman who was not just they knew uh, was an adulteress. The word says caught in the act so they found this woman interestingly caught in the act implies that there was more than one person there somebody else missing we're gonna get to that in a minute but this woman is paraded in front of Jesus and those he is teaching remember he sat down and he's teaching What they want to know is what does Jesus teach should be done with her Now we should know. We may be uncomfortable with this, but the law of Moses, the Old Testament did indeed outlaw Adultery. We live in a society that's so sexually promiscuous that that, like, that, that, that that idea is so foreign to us. It's hard to watch a movie where there's not the implication of sexual sin going on. We just, we're inundated with it. But the law of Moses did indeed outlaw adultery, which was defined as the way we would define it. Sexual relations between two people and at least one of them was married to another person. The penalty, according to Deuteronomy 22.22, 22, was execution. That was the penalty. So they are right in, in their, their interpretation of Mosaic law. Now, the stoning, stoning was not always specified. Under Jewish law, the same punishment was warranted for those engaged, and the specific method was stoning. So the issue is clear. The law perceived to teach capital punishment in this case. The evidence is conclusive. The question is, what will Jesus do about it? Now, this trap is is a really good one. They, They have set a really good trap for him. It's really clever because, on the one hand, if Jesus refuses to uphold Old Testament Mosaic law and uphold the stoning, then their suspicions about him are confirmed. He's light on the law. He's a heretic. That's why he heals people on the Sabbath, because he has no regard for God's law. If they can establish this, then their rejection of Jesus is justified. He's a heretic. He's a crazy man. He's not teaching. He's not in accordance with God and his word. On the other hand, On the other hand, his compassion for the downtrodden, for the beat down, for the ones who have made gross, have sinned in gross ways and are experiencing the suffering consequences of a life of sin. He has been compassionate to the hurting. He's been compassionate to sinners. And so a hardline judgment here would have discredited Jesus in the eyes of the people. There's another hook here. There's another hook that's part of this trap. If If stoning is advocated, they know they're under Roman rule. And if there's one thing Romans are, they're brutal. And they love to do the killing themselves. So, so the one thing they didn't allow the Jews, they allowed the Jews to practice their own law, but when it came to the stoning and the killing, they said, you leave that to us. We like to do that. So they knew that if Jesus advocated the stoning, that they might get him in trouble with the Romans, who jealously retained the right to execute. So you see the trap. Now the response is mysterious, isn't it? Does anybody find that a mysterious response? Jesus bends down and starts writing in the ground. What were you writing? I want someone to make better movies of this stuff. I tried to find a good clip. I actually found a good one, but it was so corny because Jesus had a British accent. And they were so clean, like it was just a like dusty environment and they were like scrubbed clean. I was like, they don't, that's not what they look like. So I couldn't show you that one. I went to the Passion of the Christ, which I've never seen, the Mel Gibson one. Um, I, I watched that and I thought, wow, this one will be good. You know, this will be a good rendition. And they, they like, they just messed with the timing of everything. I was like, what are you doing? So It was bad. It wasn't even good. This is mysterious, though. And and who can understand his actions? He bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. People have come up with incredible, ingenious suggestions for what Jesus was writing on the ground. We'll talk about that in a second. Certainly it was this. It was a dramatic gesture which only served to heighten the incredible amount of tension in this situation. Don't you wonder what the Pharisees thought? They rolled her in there. What is she doing? On the ground, kneeling, they're charging Jesus, what are you gonna do? And they're shouting. And then Jesus bends down and starts writing on the ground. They were probably like, what the heck is going on here? We're going to consider the actions of writing on the ground in a moment. Whatever we make of it, because we can only speculate. When he stood up and spoke, his words are crystal Clear. We may not understand what this was all about, but I do understand what he said. And what he said contributes to the tension and the mystery. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus' actions and his words in this account, present penetrating challenges to all of us. No one gets out from from under the penetrating challenge that Jesus puts to everyone who would listen to this account. And I hope you're listening. I pray you're listening. I pray the Spirit of God would open your eyes and your ears so that you would hear what he has to say. I want to offer you three Penetrating challenges that Jesus offers to all of us as we seek to understand what's happening in this account. The first is this. The need for consistency in passing judgment. The need for consistency in passing judgment. If you're humble... This should hit you somewhere. We don't want to be people who most, who first and foremost come listen to preaching and read our Bibles with everybody else in mind. We read our Bibles and we listen first with ourselves in mind. The Bible holds up a mirror to you first. This is... This is one of the challenges of following Jesus a long obedience in the same direction because over time we start to think we got it, but they ain't got it. That's dangerous. I always want to read my Bible saying, Lord, teach me. Lord, mold me. Lord, make me more like Jesus. He's not done with me yet. You might think I'm as close to Jesus as a human possibly can be. Not if you know me. Not if you really know me. I need this. There is a challenge. He's challenging the need for consistency and passing judgment. Now, let's return to the writing on the ground. This is the only mention in Scripture of Jesus writing anything. Ponder that for a second. I mean, if anybody could have written a New York Times bestseller. I mean, his disciples wrote books about him that are holy scripture. Why not one by Jesus? No autobiography of Jesus. We have no evidence of him ever writing. No, you know, every once in a while he could have written a good, you know what, let me get the guys. After that parable, I could see a lot of you were, uh, you were really confused. So I took some time to write that down, an explanation that you could hold on to. Nothing. The only time we ever see Jesus writing anything in all the Bible is when he stoops and writes on the ground. When he chose to write, it was like us, like when I was a kid playing football and I was the quarterback, I would huddle everybody together. Get down, get down. You don't want to, we don't want the t- other team to see what we're going to do here. And then I would draw on the ground. You're going this way and turn right. You're going this way, turn left. You're going short and just turn around. And I'm going to try to pass it to one of you. That's what it seems like Jesus is doing. The burning question, isn't it? The burning question. What did he write? I want to know what he wrote. Now we have to be careful about speculation. Ooh, God, be careful. Calvin said when God closes his holy mouth, we should desist from inquiry. But let's speculate. There's a place for that. That's good meditation. Speculate. There is a strong allusion to the law of God being brought here. Strong allusion to the law of God, which is said to, be, to have been written on the stone tablets, who knows their Bibles, with the finger of God. Maybe not maybe it. There was a practice, there's some other ones that we could go into, I'm not, for the sake of time, I'm not going to do that. There was a practice though in the Roman courts that before the judge gave his verdict, he would write it down and then announce it. So, so maybe there was a reference to that. My favorite theory though, this is a theory though, okay, I'm speculating. My favorite speculation is linked to his eventual answer. What's his eventual, eventual answer? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. So my speculation connects to that answer. My guess is, I'm speculating now. My guess is he kneeled down and he looked at those who hauled her in there. And then he wrote on the ground their major sin. So maybe he looked at this one and wrote embezzler, cheater. Maybe he wrote liar. Maybe he looked at them and looked at some of them and wrote adulterer. That's my theory. Their responsibility was to initiate the stoning, so they better be appropriate witnesses who hadn't connived in the sin. If they were framing the woman, then their consciences now had the opportunity to convict them. Church, that's a good thing. We could preach on it. It's a good thing when your conscience convicts you. It's uncomfortable, but it leads you to the cross and to grace. Don't be afraid of conviction. Maybe some of you, maybe will even experience that today. That's a good thing. If Jesus writes in the sand something that pierces your heart, then you can run to him for grace. I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus, though, I want you to see this. This is not a passage you can go to to show the mercy of Jesus and the kindness of Jesus without showing his holiness. We don't want to know that Jesus is really hard on the law. We just want to know about his grace. Jesus is not going light on the law. He is, in fact, saying, let the stoning begin. Let, he, let the one of you who is, is without sin... Go ahead and begin stoning her. He is in effect saying, let the stoning begin, but let it begin under valid moral conditions. The law that the, to prescribe the death penalty was as much for the man who was caught as it is for the woman. The male adulterer absence in this text is critical, church. This is a story of toxic masculinity. This is a story that shows how widely in practice it was to be sexually biased in the application of the law. And Jesus refuses to allow the woman to be disadvantaged. I love Jesus. Where was the man? Had he run for his life? Was he one of the Pharisees? They let him go? They don't want to get their buddy in trouble? Do you see the astonishing wisdom of Jesus? Do you see it? He's been displaying this over and over. Every time they set a trap, they can't get him. Because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But it should not imply, church, that the law can only be enforced by morally perfect people. That's not the point of this text. It should not imply to us that we can't pass judgment on moral issues. That's not the point of this text. It should not imply that we can't speak as a church to sexual immorality, sexually immoral issues unless we are untainted by any history of wrong deeds or desires ourselves. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus is confronting us with the need for consistency in passing judgment. The sword of judgment is double-edged. Jesus says, in judging others, we judge ourselves. An unwillingness to pronounce judgment on ourselves undercuts our right to pronounce it on others. Jesus said in another place, with the measure you use, that's the measure that's going to be used against you. When, when I hear Jesus say that we should be consistent in our judgments, knowing myself to be someone who's not always consistent in my judgments, knowing myself to be someone who looks in the mirror and, and gives all kinds of grace, but then looks at others and won't give that same grace, Jesus is putting his finger on that and saying, you are inconsistent in your judgments. God's call to all of us at all times is to live holy, godly, upright lives. Any deviation from that should concern us as much in ourselves as in others. Are you concerned about any deviations? Now, I've already said this passage has much to say to a world that is sexually promiscuous. Sexual activity before marriage, alongside marriage, outside of marriage is a fact of social life. And all Christian disciples have to come to terms with a society that pressures us towards promiscuity. The pressures are unrelenting. The pressures are subtle. We must urgently and repeatedly clarify the Christian norm of sexual sanctity between a man and woman joined in marriage. We should keep preaching that and keep heralding in that because that reflects a holy God and it reflects obedience to his will. But in its handling of those who have failed, the church needs to move with great sensitivity and great understanding. Notice what happens. Verses 10 and 11. One by one, they slip away. Which brings us to our second presenting challenge. These next two are a little quicker. So I told you there is a need. One of the, one of the, the present His actions present these penetrating challenges to all of us. The first one was a need for consistency in passing judgment. The second one, the second penetrating challenge, is a need for tirelessly declaring the reality of God's forgiving grace. Nobody said amen. I should say that again then. Because we should be challenged with the need for tirelessly declaring... To ourselves and to one another, the reality of God's forgiving grace. Who's with me? Now everyone left, all the accusers left, except for one. One was still standing there. Jesus was still standing there. The great I am, remember? I am the bread of life. These eight I am statements. In other words, he's equating himself to God, right? This is Jesus, God, holy. He could have said all of them left, but I'm still here. He didn't say that. What did he say? He said to that woman the sweetest words that she has ever heard in her life. The sweetest, most comforting, this is amazing grace words that any human being could ever hear from the lips of a holy God. Neither do I condemn you. This is the great I am. The great I am who met the people of God in Sinai in fire and thunder. It's remarkable that he should say to a self confessed sinner, with the guilt of a broken commandment heavy on her heart. Neither do I condemn you. Here it is again, friends. It's been over and over in the Gospel of John. Here it is again. The miracle of the grace of God. The wonder of the grace of God. The amazing grace of God. There is no greater wonder than this. He turned water into wine. Doesn't compare to this. He he healed the soldiers dying son with a word. Doesn't compare to this. Walking on water. None of them altogether compares with this. Neither do I condemn you. You. In this one sentence, in this phrase, we have the heart of mercy in God that is all our hope and all our salvation forever and ever and ever. Have you heard the, S- the Savior say those words to you? Have you heard him say to you, Neither do I condemn you? Can you relate to those words? Because if you can't, I fear that your heart is hardened. Because every single one of us comes to God just like this woman. Guilty, ashamed, naked, and exposed. But God clothes us with his righteousness, covering our nakedness, covering our shame, covering our guilt, and says to us, neither do I condemn you. The third presenting challenge. The first was a need for consistency in passing judgment. The second was a need for tirelessly declaring the reality of God's forgiving grace. The third is this, the need to continually walk in newness of life. Where do I get that? I'm just taking this from the scripture, guys. What did he say? How did he end it? Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus summons this woman to a new obedience to the law. So anyone who wants to look at this text and say Jesus is light on the law, look at where he ends. He's, it's a terrible mistake to interpret this story as if the law is unimportant or if sin is unimportant it's important how should she respond to grace how should she respond to those words neither do i condemn you what's the what's the logical response what's the jesus commanded response what's the presenting challenge it's the need to continually walk in the newness of life that forgiveness has purchased for you what shall we say then Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. Somebody knows Romans. By no means. It's, a, it's an absurd question because you've been set free. From sin. Just like the person Renee is gonna be baptized this morning, just like the person is being baptized, you have been you died with Christ. Your old self has died, and now you rise with him, walking in newness of light. When should you start walking in newness of light? Waiting until you get to heaven? No. Right now. (laughs) Right now. That's another sermon. Let me remind you, though, that Christ upheld the law here. He even set it in motion, the stoning, the application of its judgment. Let's remember, church, that forgiveness, the forgiveness that is extended is not conditional on repentance. He said first, neither do I condemn you. Then he said, go therefore and sin no more. He didn't say, hey, listen, go therefore and sin no more then neither do I condemn you. But that order is crucial. One creates a works-based religion. One establishes the miracle of grace that is Christianity. Jesus clearly sees her repentance as the natural outcome of forgiveness. Are you with me on that? Do you see that? Forgiveness does not operate in some non-moral sphere. Forgiveness is not above the law. Our God, the living, holy one, distinguishes between right and wrong. If, if you and I can distinguish between right and wrong, how much more does a holy God distinguish between right thoughts, right actions, right words, and those that are wrong? He's always the Holy One, even as He is also the merciful and forgiving One. For Jesus To be able to say, Neither do I condemn you. It cost him the hell of Calvary. God's not light on sin. It's like he's saying, Forgive her, Father, because you know where I'm headed. You know I'm going to pay for that. My life for hers. That's the gospel. My life for yours. Sin scorches us when it comes under the light of forgiveness, says Carl Bart. Sin scorches us when it comes under the light of forgiveness. You want to meet someone who knows a deep love for Christ in their heart? It's someone who has been scorched by the reality of their sin and is, can't believe that Jesus would take their place. These are penetrating challenges for all of us. The need to be consistent in our judgments. The need to continually proclaim the miracle of God's forgiving grace. And that mercy from God calls out or produces living for God. Mercy from God brings forth living for God. There's a need to go and from now on sin no more. If you have received, then neither do I condemn you. And there is no better picture of this than baptism. We've got a number of people to baptize and we're just scheduling them out. It's one of the sacraments of the church. We try to do communion once a month. We don't do baptism once a month. Wouldn't it be awesome to do baptisms once a month? We've got enough stacked up that we can do them once a month for a little while. Let's rejoice as Renee comes and Dave comes. We'll give her a chance to declare her faith in Jesus that she's been one who has received the words from Jesus, neither do I condemn you, and heard him say, Go therefore and now walk in newness of life. Let's welcome her as she comes.